appreciate it. Right. I'm still not used to this intro part. It feels so <laughs> weird. But... Let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Brick by Brick. Today, I'm joined by Alex Lyman. Thank you so much for taking the time for coming on. Thanks for having me. Really excited to get into the conversation and learn about your story and share a bit about mine. Yeah, well, I'm super excited for this one. It wasn't in the plan. It wasn't expected. I saw your tweet and I was like, sent, shot you a DM because I was like, I would love to speak to this guy. On one of my last episodes, I was speaking to a VC and he worked in consulting and then he now works in a wellness venture capital firm. And he said the best founders that he's interacted with, they have a homing missile to money. And he went to the same college as Alex Lieberman, similar name of Morning Brew. And he said he saw him at college and he was handing out this newsletter and he was, what the hell is that guy doing? Everyone else was going to finance, consulting, and he left college to go and work on the newsletter, which is now an $80 million company. And he's obviously super successful. So when I read a bit of your story, and maybe this is because you have similar names, but I'm getting the same feeling and sound. So that's why I think this is an exciting conversation to have. And I'm, I feel grateful that I've been able to document it now. I genuinely mean that because I think in 10 years, this will be an interesting thing to look back on. Wow. So Great compliment. Yeah, of course. Well, why don't you... Actually, I'll give a bit of an intro. You've created a mobile app called Wingman. It used to be called RizGPT. We'll talk about how that changed. Um, and it's got, what, 900K downloads in two months? Yeah. Um, we're over a million now, uh, but maybe two and a half months. So, yeah. That's sick. So can you talk a bit about what it is, what it does? Yeah. Um, so we're an AI dating assistant. So essentially, users will upload screenshots of text conversations they're having, uh, whether that be on Tinder, Hinge, or iMessage. Um, and then we scan that image. And then we use uh, AI to help them respond. Specifically, we use um, OpenAI's uh, API. I wonder. <laughs> I think we're in compliance uh, with them. I asked GPT-4 if we were in compliance with uh, OpenAI's regulations, and it said yes. So I, I think we're clear. But uh, yeah. That's sick. And so how many... Tell us about the whole strategy and story, because I understand that you started... We'll get into your history, but... At this point in time, you looked for an idea that you could, dis you thought about how you could distribute whatever you made before you made it and then you made it. So can you yeah. talk about, we'll skip the start to begin with, but for now, you wanted to talk, you wanted to have something that could go viral. So yeah. how did you think about that? And then how did you make it happen? Yeah. So, I mean, and we'll get into the story, a bit of context. It's like I had no money. <laughs> I was running out of money, honestly. Um, and so I needed to try to make myself a little bit of money quickly to give myself more runway. Cause I was like, I want to keep doing entrepreneurship. I don't want to get a job. Um, but it's important for me to start making a bit of money. Um, and so my skill set was in going viral on TikTok. Uh, that was one of the skills that I had been building over the past year. Um, and so when this idea kind of came to me, it was actually one of my partners that called me up with this idea. And he said, okay, there's a use case for the APIs um, with the AI APIs here of helping people flirt. And we were like, oh, that could be really good. Um, and at the same time, we were just getting into Swift development, actually using GPT-4 to do that. And so kind of like it was became clear to us, like, okay, this is something we can do. Um, and so to validate the idea, 
what we did is we started going on TikTok and looking up like the Riz niche as a whole. Like what is rizzing girls up? Like, and for listeners who don't know what Riz means, it's like to flirt, to Riz is to flirt. And so we started looking at that niche on TikTok and we saw no one was advertising in this space. No one was working with creators in this space and videos were doing millions of views. Um, and so we thought about the product and it's like, this obviously has a viral hook. Like you hear it, it's funny, it sticks with you. Um, and we thought that there would be demand. Um, and we know it would be cheap to advertise. And so after we kind of validated initially that we thought distribution could work for this, started building it. Um, and then nearly two weeks after launch, those that theory was uh, validated. We had a video do 4 million views. Um, and I remember we went up to like 90th on the app store, like in lifestyle. I was like, holy shit. And then over the next like two days, we went up to like number two on the app store we were staying up like all night, sleeping like three hours, just DMing creators to get promos up. Uh, just like we were convinced we were going to go number one in the world, which did not happen. Maybe it will happen in the future. Um, we were a little bit delusional, but it was really fun. And that initial work paid off and we've continued to be able to go viral and continue to rank and bring in downloads. God, that sounds absolutely wild. So how, how many of you are there on the team? Who is there? Um, me and two other guys. Okay. So how long were you staying up for and having three hours sleep for? Was this like over a period of a couple of weeks? Like, is it true what they say, like when you're winning, you're not tired? That's that's interesting. I've never heard that. Um, definitely not that tired, more so just like delusional. Like it felt like we were <laughs> fight or flight, like constantly. Like I'd call up my co-founders and be like, do you feel like really weird right now? Like, did you not sleep either? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to shower and like, I'll be out in like three minutes and we'll get back on the call. And we'll figure it out. Like we were just going, going, going. Yeah. I don't think I was tired. I was more so just like, honestly, like very stressed, which is kind of funny, but it's like a good stress. It wasn't like a complete panic, but it felt like had had no idea what was going on. I saw on your tweet, you said you tried a load of different like content ideas, even like starting new accounts, like all different yeah. styles. What are some things you experiment with? Yeah. So when we start making content, like the first thing that we do is we look at like what the broad space looks like um, for the content creation, like for the niche that we want to target. Um, and so we had kind of incorporated some content styles. That, so I was contracting for this business, Hyperwrite, um, with one of my partners, Evan Dre, and we had been making videos for them. And we grew their TikTok page from like zero to 50,000 followers um and so we initially like really liked the content style we were doing for them it was like really trend based like where you take the camera you do it watching evan do this is really funny and um mm -hmm. like swivel the camera and like swivel out like to the beat of the song um and like finding these trends and so that was the first kind of content style we started and that went okay um but really what hit for us was these kind of slideshow riz uh kind of content where a young young guys specifically are flirting um, and like kind of showing the progression of the conversation. And so we kind of saw this niche and we were like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. And so we just plugged our product right in the middle um, of those kinds of conversations. So it'd be like, and actually it's kind of funny. We would, um, we, we created a special version of the app where we could write in the replies ourselves. I mean, the replies are really good, but we made the replies like ridiculously funny. Um, and so that actually would like the best kind of promotions on TikTok are where you put in the product, it helps the video do more viral. 
go more viral, that is. And in most cases, when you plug a product, um, like it hurts the virality of the video. But with this product, the way we were running these promotions, it only amplified the videos, which is just a perfect combination. The creators are very excited to work with you and we're very excited to work with the creators. That is sick. So when you say creators, yeah, how do you find and how do you network and meet these creators? Yeah. And so I'll answer that question. And also to take a step back, I'll kind of explain a little bit more about our strategy as a whole. So like there's multiple things that we do. Um, like we kind of have three main strategies. Like number one, we make content in-house. Um, and so that's kind of the question you're asking on my tweet. I was talking about iterating through content and that's the content that we make in-house. And that's just waking up every day thinking, okay, I'm going to make a video today. Uh, I'm going to look at some videos, get some inspiration and keep going till something hits. Um, and so we were able to get something to hit and we were, we got, we're up to like 140,000 nearly on TikTok followers. Um, and we've done probably like 50 million views on our account, something like that. Um, so that's one avenue of marketing. And then the other is the creator marketing, um, which you just brought up. Um, and so with the creators, it, uh, how do we find them? Um, TikTok search is fantastic. We'll just search things up like Rizzing Girls. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of embarrassing that I'm spending my time looking that up, but it's an effective strategy um, or like, how to flirt with a girl or how to become more confident, all these things. Um, and so just iterating through search terms, finding big creators in a relevant space, reaching out to them, DMing them, emailing them, asking to work with them, um, building relationships. Like I love to get on the phone with these guys and really build a relationship. And so like some of these guys are younger and we kind of figured out um, they're entrepreneurs themselves. And so we would get in a call with them and I would talk to them about e-commerce for like an hour or set them up with one of my partners who knows more about e-commerce, Evan, and have him coach them for an hour um, about how to, because that's what they ultimately wanted to do. They wanted to start their own businesses because these guys, some of these creators are like 16 years old. Um, and so like building those relationships um, and then, yeah, you, you negotiate a deal, pay them money, product goes up on their page and you get downloads. Yeah, that's sick. It's crazy because obviously you're 22, I'm 24. I grew up with YouTube and that was like, maybe like my parents would have been like, what the hell is this YouTube thing? How could you ever make money from it? I'm not even that old. And already I feel like I've, TikTok has sort of come underneath me and I haven't really noticed it or paid loads of attention. So I think it's crazy that it's now become such a useful tool for marketing. Do you think that it works for any business or do you think that it has to be something that's already got viral qualities to it. I think it could work for any business, but I think there's certain businesses that it's easier for it to work than others. And I think as you kind of get into businesses that are more and more boring, like you need to get more and more creative uh, with your strategy. So like um, a B2B email service is going to be harder to market than a viral is app, but there's, there's ways to do both of them. Um, and building an audience is, going to become more and more valuable. Um, I was talking with another builder yesterday who's done tens of millions of app downloads. And we kind of share the view that the only two ways, at least to blow up consumer apps now, either you have a really high K factor, really high replication rate, just person to person, or you have to be really good at going viral on TikTok. And there's almost no, no other way to do it, which is crazy, but that's really what the shift has been. Yeah, that's crazy. And for those who are wondering, without sort of talking about direct numbers, 
one million downloads and then the way that you make money with these apps is through paywalls so that m most people will have a free version and a paid version right yeah um so when we initially started we um we were paywalling users after um five generated um, and then they would get a paywall and we would charge seven dollars a week uh, which is definitely aggressive pricing but people were willing to pay um and then as we've kind of progressed over the past week, honestly, uh, we've shifted over to using uh, this service that I'm a big fan of, um, Superwall, um, where the CEO, uh, Jake, just got on the phone with us um, and walked us through setting up the product and talked to us about paywalling strategies because this is he's an expert in paywalling. Like, this is what he does and thinks about all day. Um, and through implementing Superwall, paywalling users earlier in the, in the process, um, we've been able to double revenue overnight by doing that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, without getting into numbers, it's these apps are very monetizable. Yeah, that's sick. And I actually, I downloaded it ahead of this episode, um, just to, I felt like it, it was right to play with it. And it was, I was interested to see that the pay will come straight away. I know. Um, but the fact, the fact that I knew what it was, and I was keen to try it even just as fun, it was almost I don't know if other users have, have this experience, but it was like, okay, paywall, fine. I'll, I went straight through it, which is kind of interesting because it almost, because it gave me a binary choice. It's either pay or leave. Whereas an app where it's like, maybe you want to pay or do you want to go and try it for a few weeks and then pay? It almost made it a cleaner and easier experience. So I'm, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out with tools like that. Definitely. Uh, and it was something we were like really apprehensive to do. And I don't even know if we'll like necessarily keep it. The thing that we do offer now that we didn't before is a free trial because it's important to us. Like, I don't want to charge people before they have a good experience with our product. Um, and so locking people into billing is nice, but it's really easy through Apple to cancel. Um, and so that's important to us. And we're never going to pay while people like out of the gate um, without giving them an option to at least try it for free just doesn't seem right to me. Um, but Getting people early uh, to commit to that is a, a really effective strategy. The theory being, and it's kind of been validated through us and through other brands that have done this, users intent to pay like for every minute they're on the platform, like goes down. Like they're really excited when they download the app. Like downloading an application in itself, it's that's a really hard barrier to cross. And that's when people are most excited about the product. And so you try to paywall them a week after that, like there's a good chance they might have churned already, or they'll just be less less excited about the product as a whole. And the other thing about that strategy, um, our product specifically, I think it's best when you have unlimited responses, because the truth is, so our responses are really good, but you need to generate a lot to find something that's like true to you. So if I use the product myself, like I might generate 10 responses and then edit one, and then that might be a message that I'll send out. Um, and so that I think is the best way to get the highest utility out of the product. So I'm glad that with this new strategy, people are getting unlimited out of the gate um, and they can really see if the product is actually right for them. Yeah. I didn't have a chance. I should have gone through the reviews on the app store. Are people, what are people say? Oh man. So we, we fell after we implemented immediate paywalls from like 4.5 stars, like 4.4, which is oh, no way. Hit. So yeah, a lot of the written reviews that we've gotten recent have been people upset about a free trial. So yeah, this is something we're testing and navigating, um, mm. and, and we'll see what we do. Uh, but so far, it's been a really interesting experiment, I'll tell you that. And do you think there are people who genuinely use it, 
like constantly when they're on Tinder and Bumble and stuff. Are you one of them? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's funny. Like I've had some conversations um, with some, with some girls who I'm friends with um, who are at least like, know uh, that I run this business and they'll be like, Oh, are you using um, wingman to talk to me? And then I'll take a screenshot. <laughs> plug that into wingman and wingman said no i would never do that like i'm just interested in talking so i'll send that back to them they'll be like oh okay and then i'll send them the screenshot afterwards that the proof that okay wingman just effectively gaslit them so this is not a good use of the product i wouldn't condone that kind of the product um but pretty pretty funny um but you know i i like to use it um to get inspiration um i don't think like I don't view this product as something to replace communication. Um, I view it as kind of like the, the general theory overall is that there's a lot of guys who don't have a support network to give them advice in dating. This is kind of like the theory behind the product as a whole. Um, and specifically like girls more typically do tend to have that support ne network and certain guys do. Um, and so I'm lucky where like sometimes if I'm having a conversation with um, like a prospective partner, I'll take a screenshot and I'll send it to some of my close guy friends or some of my girlfriends. I'll say, what do I say? Like, I have no idea what to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very lucky that I have people that are willing to put up with that. And they might get a little annoyed when I do that, um, but they're willing to put up with that. And I think a lot of guys don't have that. And so our product provides kind of the support and it's not like a plug and play solution. It's not going to get you a date on your own, but it will give you good ideas. Um, and we've had some users, some, we, we talked to a 16 year old in Paris who says he unsubscribed, he churned from the app, but the reason was because he learned how to Riz from the product. Um, and so he says he learned how to be more confident, how to communicate with girls, and now he can do it himself. And so if that's a reason someone's turning off the product, I mean, I think that means we're doing our job and I, I can certainly accept that. So I, I think it's more of a co-pilot than a, than a total replacement. Yeah, that is sick. That is sick. Such a funny idea. So how did you actually build it? What, without going into like too much technical detail, what are the sort of building blocks of a iOS app? Yeah, so, I mean, there's obviously, and preface, I'm not technical. Um, and so I wrote like some of the code um, with uh, GPT-4. That's the only way I can write code myself. I'm just like thinking about it on a high level. Um, but Blake Anderson, who's one of my two co-founders, is kind of like leading development. But I can speak to some of the building blocks. So step one is kind of like on device. Um, and this is actually the part that I built out myself, which is like um, image scanning and image scanning and recognition. And so Apple has really great, sorry, really great built-in framework um, to scan uh, words off of images. And so we have to take that into a lot of processing to figure out sender and receiver. Cause you can't just take this big blob of text that was scanned and get anything useful out of it. And so we classify sender and receiver based on like text positioning and boxes and all kinds of specific rules. Um, and then we get a transcript and then we send that transcript over to OpenAI, um, essentially asking for a response to their API. Um, and we send that over with a long list of instructions, exactly how we want uh, OpenAI to respond. And so we have, and this is kind of our, part of the proprietary special sauce is our prompt we think is really, really good. And it's like a page long. Um, and so we send over with all these custom instructions, we get a response back, we feed it to the user. Um, and so that's kind of a high level of how it works. 
Interesting. And the customer instructions are the same every time for every user. Depending, so we have a spice meter on the app where users can determine how spicy they want their reply to be. Um, and so depending on that spice bar, we change the prompt. Okay. That's super interesting. Yeah. And um, also these models just have a degree of randomness built into them and you can set kind of your randomness level when you're working with the APIs. And so that even if you send the same transcript every time, same prompt, you get something unique every time. Mm, that's cool. I recently learned about custom instructions and I filled out a whole profile about me and about like my marketing agency, my podcast, um, a DJ in London. And I asked it to, every time it answers anything, if I ask, first of all, it has a profile for each of my sort of projects that I'm working on so it can answer specifically. And then I asked it to spit out any synergy ideas. So like where I could use one thing for one part and a different part. And I also asked it to have content ideas and it's been sick. I haven't used any of it yet because I've my to-do list is too long, but it's a really good serendipity engine for mixing ideas together. And it brings me ideas that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, so that's sick. Do you use it personally? It's best. That's the software LLMs as a whole are best at like bringing unique kind of things together and finding synergy and doing like a unique analysis. Like a lot of people just think it's autocomplete and I, I totally disagree with that. I think it's truly like reasoning. Do you ever use it personally with custom instructions? Is there anything that you found to be particularly useful? I haven't explored custom instructions too much, um, but I use it personally like every single day. Like I love refining my prompting ability um, to get like unique results. I, I use GPT for like everything in my life, like legal advice. I have it write things for me. I have it generate new business ideas. Uh, I'm like obsessed with the technology. Interesting. And now as someone, you're clearly an ideas person, as I would say I am. And sometimes I'm a bit like, I'll ask for the ideas and I'm like, okay, thanks. Those were like the template ideas. But how am I going to actually find an idea that cuts through the noise? Do you, have you found a way to generate ideas that you're genuinely impressed by? If you use yeah, the right prompt? It's just about the uh, specificity of the prompt you're using, in my opinion. Um, and so like the more information you give it to work with, like the more novel responses you'll get. So like, I won't just say to it like, hey, can you give me a business idea that has something to do with like GPT and OpenAI? I mean, you're not going to get anywhere. Like I'll talk about specific things. Like I'll say, this is like a niche that's viral on TikTok. Um, and this is like, you know, the vision uh, API is going to be coming out soon enough. And like these two things, given this and this business strategy, like, what do you think? Like, give me 10 different ideas. And then like the two that I like, I'll be like, okay, let's explore those. So it's, again, I use it like as a co-pilot um, versus just a, a unique idea generator. Um, I really love, like whenever I do writing, like it's a collaborative effort. And at the end of any long writing pieces I do, I'm always including like a link to the conversation that I had with GPT to generate that writing. I, I just think it's an incredible collaboration tool. That's really cool. Yeah, that's sick. I love how um, you're just on top of all the latest things. And going back to what I was saying earlier about how I sort of let TikTok run past me a bit, now I'm very much going to catch back up. But what do you think the next, say, in 10, 15 years, what do you think that, sort of entrepreneur is going to look like like the successful ones and what do you think they're spending their time doing now at our age before they have resources or contacts it's so hard to know 
um, because I, I'm one of these people that believes that like artificial general intelligence is coming in like five years from now. Um, and I think that when that happens, like there's going to, the world is going to change so drastically. It's like, for me, it's so hard to try to predict, um, what's coming, what's coming next. And the next like two to three years, I can tell you, I, I mean, I think there's going to be huge opportunity, um, with large language models that integrate multimodal capabilities like vision, um, and voice. Um, and I think these models are going to get more multimodal, um, and closer, to artificial general intelligence, but I think where the opportunity is, is in kind of like doing what we're doing, where we're focusing in on a really specific niche, um, but using kind of multimodal capabilities. So I think like AI therapists, like fashion assistants, um, like personal assistants, um, like life coaches, like all these things. I think that's really where a lot of big AI business opportunities are. As for what the young entrepreneurs are doing now, I might be biased because these are the ones that I work with, but I think they're figuring out distribution. I think they're making pages that aren't, they're not even monetizing right now. I think they're figuring out how to go viral on TikTok with stuff they're passionate about and not even like with their faces. Like there's a lot of kids who are putting out content that's just like faceless, fun content. I think they're on Discord, hustling. There's kids start younger and younger. We have 13 year olds that hit us up to try to start like learning from us in marketing. Um, on They'll find us on Discord and they'll be like, hey, like, can I help on marketing? And it's like, whoa i wasn't doing that when i was 13. yeah that's insane i guess it's because the internet gives you access now to so much um knowledge basically so you don't have to wait for school to say that you're ready to go and learn things kids are like going out there and doing it themselves which is sick i think definitely that's right yeah okay so that's that's wingman Oh yeah, why why did you have school at Wingman? It started with Riz GPT. Oh, yeah, I I just really dislike intellectual property, um, at least in the way that I've experienced it so far. Um, so there's another app, Riz, um, that was out before us, and it, there's nice they're nice guys um, that run the company. We've just kind of had some disputes with them. They wanted they wanted us to change our name, and we didn't um, really agree uh, with everything that they said. And I won't get into the legal specifics of it. Um, but I'm a believer in just kind of moving on from conflict. I have no interest in trying to get lawyers involved where it's not necessary. And so we just decided to change our name because that was their request. Um, and it really hasn't affected us too much. Our strategy is to go viral and drive traffic. Um, and so, you know, our view, we think we've grown, grown the space as a whole. Um, the transition to wingman was really easy. Um, and honestly, sneak peek, we might actually be changing the name again because there's some people with wingman IP now that are bothering us. This is the IP challenge are never ending. So my new strategy, I think we might call it AI dating assistant, which is an exact descriptive term on what we're doing and means it's like we couldn't trademark that. No one could trademark that and like never have to deal with IP with this business again. Definitely a lesson um, before I start um, any apps going forward. Going to nail the uh, intellectual property to avoid these kind of issues before we start. Yeah, interesting. What are the Riz team actually, what are they like? Are they young as well or are they? They're like, uh, I, I don't want to misquote, I guess, but I, they're like, I think 30 in their 30s, early 30s. Um, and they've been doing app businesses for a long time. Um, and we kind of, they were on the scene first um, and we came in and we were a bit disruptive. Um, but I think, you know, their business is still doing really well. I think um, I'm not, 
in communication with them. That's kind of my impression from an outside perspective. Our business is doing really well and we haven't heard from them recently. So I think we're now kind of just cruising in our lanes, uh, both happy. That's cool. Um, I like the way that you say that. Some people seem to like not be able to walk away from conflict. And I always just think there's, what is the point? You might as well just cut it there. Even if you take a little loss, and then go back to work on the important thing. Totally agree. I, I have no interest in being in legal conflict with anybody. It's like, why would, I mean, that stresses me out. It stops me from working on my business. It would stop them from working on their business. And I also just like, I'm not like a big believer in competition. Like I think there's certain specific business models where competition can really hurt you, where you have like a small enclosed audience or it's a network-based business where like it has to be in a winner take all. Like, yeah, I can't compete with Uber, but for most tools, um, and, and honestly, I think most businesses as a whole, I think there's plenty of room in the market. And I think the real winners are the ones that grow the market. Yeah, I agree. And I also think the ones that become like, dangerously unique, and that is true for founders as well. But instead of trying to all morph into the same thing and compete for the same thing, as you say, grow the pie and then find your area in that pie. For all you know, there's a huge pie over there and they've got a huge one over there. So Exactly. What makes you think that AGI is going to be a thing in five years? Uh, the accelerating rate of technology. So, so my understanding is that the algorithms that are powering this stuff, like even with the same level of compute, um, are getting like exponentially more efficient. And so like, even if compute were to remain constant, we're still going to get closer, um, to more powerful models. Um, and then on top of that, so it's like kind of two exponential forces working simultaneously, like the current level of compute is getting more efficient at processing the information and there's more money being put into the compute and the power uh, is growing exponentially as well. Um, and so those two things combined, it's just like, you look at where we are now versus where we were five years ago and it's mind boggling. And I think people constantly uh, change the uh, goalposts. I think like people would talk all about the Turing test and I think opening eyes like blown right past them. It's like, you don't hear anything about the Turing test anymore. I think people like are really um, biased in terms of thinking that human intelligence is like the end all be all. And it's like, I think that GPT-4 is like already smarter than like me in so many ways. Um, and I think soon it will be smarter than me in nearly every way. When you say smarter, what, how, do you, how do you define that? Because obviously in terms of like pure volume of knowledge, it's obviously you can't compete with that. But in terms of smarter, um, yeah, what do you mean by that? Because to me, it seems like it's a huge model based on statistical, based on statistics, basically. And as you yeah. say, you can like do better prompts to bring out better language. But my thing is, I don't understand how it could be an AGI unless consciousness, whatever that is, arises out of that system becoming like way more efficient and more full of data. Whether or not yeah. it's actually conscious, it appears to be conscious. I guess there's kind of the same, has the same result for us using it. But how do you see that? How do you see it moving from a statistical model to something that's like the human brain? Because that's how I define AGI. Yeah. So I think consciousness number one is like such a blurry line and um, like term that's really hard to like put an exact thing on. Um, but on, on top of that, 
I, this is kind of what I hear. And I don't think you're taking an extreme position here at, by any means, but I, an extreme argument is that it's just a statistical model. How could it generate anything new? Um, and it's just, but here, here's the thing, like it's trillions of calculations and data points. And like, what is our brain, but a bunch of atoms bouncing off each other in somewhat of a random way, right? Like you can't control the way like an individual atom or neuron in your brain fires yet you exist. And I mean, this is a deeper philosophical argument about whether free will is even a thing, but like, there's a bunch of random things that are happening in your head that somehow produce intelligence. And it's really hard to understand. And we don't know how, but we do know it's like trillions of things interacting. So my understanding of like consciousness and intelligence is it happens when there's trillions of things that are happening all at the same time that we don't quite understand. And that's a very basic kind of understanding there's obviously like you can go much deeper into like what actually creates it. But for me, like, that's all I know. Um, and I think like, I'm sure science goes a bit further than that, but I, I just think we can't understand what happens in these models when there's trillions of data points that are being calculated. I think miraculous things happen. And I think properties emerge, uh, when you have enough numbers multiplying against each other. Yeah, I think that's a completely fair point. And I'm definitely not going to sit here and argue with that because, like, how could anyone know? The only thing I would say is maybe trillions of bits on a silicon chip are different to trillions of neurons and synapses and chemicals in the brain and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, but... and it, it might be a, a different kind of intelligence. Um, but, like, eventually, like, you could imagine a computer that's big enough could simulate every single atom in somebody's brain um, and every single chemical interaction. And I, I think at that point, you would pretty much, it'd be really hard to argue that that thing isn't conscious. I mean, it's all atoms at the end of the day. Like, I don't, yeah. I'm not a believer that, at least I don't think there's proof that there's anything absolutely fundamental, like about the human brain that can't be replicated in silicon mm. or in other computational systems. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the craziest thing that I was listening to a podcast with Tim Ferriss, Naval and David Deutsch, and they were talking about knowledge and how it evolves and basically there's seven I don't know, seven eight billion people and our brains digest information apply logic to it and if it tests if it passes logic tests we make the thing and bring it into the world like you thought maybe if i make an app that helps people talk to girls then that will be successful and then you test it with your friends and then you build it and then it goes through the, the, that block of knowledge goes through all these tests and then happens AI has allowed us to automate tasks, but AGI would allow us to automate logic testing and coming up with ideas, which would mean instead of having 8 billion people on earth thinking about something and then one Einstein pops up and one Elon Musk pops up, then I can't get my head around the fact that there'll be potentially infinite logic testing inf computing machines and what sort of ideas will come out of that. Like we almost, we wouldn't have enough human power to build enough of the ideas, but it would be insane. It could be a completely, as you say, if, if AGI came in five years, in 10 years, the world could look completely different. Completely. And, not even just and humanity's place in the universe will be completely different. Like I don't, I genuinely think like the two options, like for me are either like I die because AGI like kills me or like I can live nearly for forever uh, because of the advances that AGI will make in medicine. Like, I don't think there's any law of the universe that says even like humans have to die. I know this is kind of like a crazy tangent, but I, I think 
we we could live forever and take over the universe. I mean, if we harness this technology properly. I've never actually thought of that really in deep deeply, but yeah, why would there be a law that you have that humans have to die? Sure oh, sorry, the, the AC. I mean, we can talk we can talk through it if you want. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's a law that you have to die, um, and, and I don't think um, there's a law that says this kind of compute like we're we're reaching a, a limit anytime soon. I think we're going to continue to grow at an exponential rate, and these machines are going to continue to get smarter and smarter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could talk about this with you all day, um, but I still want to touch on more in your story and like how you got to where you are now. Sure. So I believe after, after you left college, you committed to spending a year making some sort of business work. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Can you talk me through the thinking? Because just for context, I left, we call it uni in the UK, um, basically tried to do the same thing, but I ended up getting a job out of... I suppose, risk aversion and societal pressure, which yeah. I'm now leaving to go on and do what you've done. And a lot of people, some, all the entrepreneurs I know are all supportive and all the people with jobs I know are all like, oh, you need to be in a job for longer to learn from it. So yeah. I'm interested, what was your thought process and how do you feel now? Yeah, so first thing was taking a step back. When I was in college, I started this food delivery business. Um, and that kind of opened my mind to entrepreneurship being a path I wanted to pursue. Um, we sold like $700,000 of pancakes um, and breakfast food and grew into burgers and eventually like convenience items. But that was a great experience. Um, and 100000 Yeah, yeah. Um, we, it was a food delivery service, but I didn't make any money on it personally. Like the margins on food are so slim. And it's what made me want to go into software. But it was just a fantastic experience. And I was like, this is so fun. Um, why would I want to do anything else? So like, that's number one, which is like, I genuinely just love this. Um, number two is that like, you know, I don't think that a lot of people are in this position, but I think I have a lot of privilege that has enabled me to pursue this entrepreneurial path. So like number one, I'm from Palo Alto, California. Um, and that's where I've lived since from third grade up until I went off to college surrounded by entrepreneurship. And so it's like, I think you can only, aim as high as you can really see for the most part, at least that's for me. Um, and I was just constantly seeing like going over to my friend's houses and they had Google glasses, um, like on like in 2014 or whenever that was announced, I was like, this is so cool. I used to fake being sick every time there was a Apple announcement so I could stay home, um, and, and watch them announce this. So this had kind of always been something I'd love technology, which I think is, myself like combined with the environment i was in um but kind of on top of that like and and this privilege which is i didn't come out of school with any debt which is like kind of again like a unique experience that i was very lucky that my parents were able to support me in that way and i also was allowed to go move back in with my parents after i graduated and not pay rent um and both of those things were very lucky where i had no financial pressure right and I think a lot of people don't experience that. I'll tell you, a lot of my peers who went and got jobs and thought it was crazy that I was doing entrepreneurship had that same social, uh, not social, security, same security net, um, but still thought it was a crazy risk that I was taking. And I just didn't view it as like any sort of risk at all um, because they're, like I said, very lucky, right? No financial pressure. 
able to live like somewhat indefinitely. Obviously, my parents aren't going to be cool with me being like 30 living in their house. It's like, why would I not take that risk now? I'm young. I have no responsibility to anybody else. I don't have a family. My, my biggest fear would be um, like if I wanted to take a risk when I'm like 35 and I have kids that I have to support and then I screw up and like struggle to put food on the table. I mean, that would just be terrible. Um, and so now is for me, when I was thinking through it, the best time to take that risk. Um, and who cares? Like I'll start, I'll start my career later. And I think showing, uh, if I had to get a job showing some sort of entrepreneurial spirit, at least for me, I, that's, I would want to hire somebody who uh, has that, but I'm also a little biased. Um, yeah. So I, I guess uh, more people, like if they have the opportunity, I would encourage them to take those risks. That's sick. And first of all, if we're in person, I'd shake your hand because I love that you think like that. And I also love that you answered like that. Like what a humble person and a humble way to answer accepting well, those things as privileges. Um, definitely. I don't think it takes away from your achievements thus far in this short period of time at all. Um, and I also think I had a habit when I was younger of listening to podcasts and I would try and pattern match between my life and that founder's life. And if they'd had something that I didn't, I would think that maybe I wasn't going to be able to do what they did. So I appreciate your humility so much, but also for people who aren't, who maybe don't have the same ability to take that risk, I would just like to say like, the internet has so much information and so much opportunity. If you have to work a part-time job for part of the week or all full-time and work in the evenings, it's completely possible to do this. I'm, I'm sure of it. Like I, I'm taking a risk leaving my job in the sense that if I don't make any money, I'll have to leave my house with my friends in London and move back into my mum's sofa, which again, I'm privileged that that is the option because I'm not going to be on the street. But I completely agree with you. Don't have a family, don't have any responsibilities, don't really don't have any debt. Like there's no, there's nothing there's no reason not to. If anything, this is for me the biggest risk actually is getting a job now and then staying in a career totally. for the rest of your life. Totally. That's for me the biggest risk as well that I see. because uh, for me, I've I've just kind of thought like I'm what I'm really scared of as well um, is being stuck in a position, as I said, like down the road. Um, where I have to work a job that I don't like, like a job that I actually hate. Like if I had to dread going to work every day and did that year in, year out, and I knew I had to do that because I had um, like bills to pay and people to support, like I would do it. Um, but that would, that's not the life that I'm striving for. And I think getting a job now, like puts me at a higher risk of, I guess, like being in that situation. Though, like there's nothing wrong with, as starting a career either. I think there's so many people I know that start careers that are really happy. Um, and that's the path that they want to pursue. So it's not like this is the path that I think everybody has to take, I think, no matter what. Uh, but yeah, in your case, I mean, I think it's great that you're taking the risk now, right? Like, why put it off any longer? If, that, if this is what, uh, what the universe is telling you to do, this is what you're feeling, like, now's the time to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, it's, it's way more fun. And I also think there's a I just feel like, and I agree with your point, people who do choose to do a career, I'm absolutely not saying that's a bad thing. If that's what works for you, then go ahead. But there's some people, I suppose, like us, who that's not really a, a, an option for. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me was just, there's so much information just swirling around the internet every single day 
that there's never been a better time to be a curious person. There's so much information swirling around on the internet right now that as a curious person, there's also a time risk of working on something from nine to five that doesn't let you pursue your natural curiosity because you can find these little niche holes and you can just go for miles and just become like an expert in a year, which I think is crazy. I totally agree. And also, I mean, not to tie it back to like AI or anything like this, but like I view the potential like window of opportunity um, to do this stuff before AI takes over literally everything as um, potentially like a small and special window in time. I mean, I think it's the best time to start a business now, like you said. And I mean, even from like, if you want to start a technology business, the APIs that are available that are incredibly cheap, um, and like the coding resources that are out there, I'm able to code and I can't even code. I just talk to GPT. I mean, that's just such a, it's such a special time um, to be working on businesses. And yeah, for me, like at one point, I was in between businesses and I was like, well, I guess I should apply for jobs. Oh my God, that was hard. Like I literally started a different, I started a marketing consulting business because it was too hard for me to like apply for jobs. I was like, I do not want to start at like the ground floor and have to like prove myself or anything like this. Like you're just, you can be like artificially limited by like the constraints of that company and like the, um, oh, you can only get a promotion after like six months of working somewhere because that's the way things are. And like for me, it's like I want a two X in a week if if yeah. that's what I've if that's what I've earned. If I provide value, like I want to feel that value personally um, and, and get a piece yeah. of that. So it, for me, it was entrepreneurship made the most sense. Yeah, that's very cool. Did you have, did you end up applying for any jobs? Uh, yeah, I applied for a lot of jobs. Like just kind of randomly was throwing applications out there. I don't think I got into like any of them. So <laughs> like, this is what's wild. Like, I can imagine your CV. I don't. No offense. But it won't look good as CVs look because, like, what you've done is insane. Like, selling 700K of food in a delivery service at, at college is insane. But on a CV, it doesn't translate into, like, work experience, which is just wild. I don't... Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I don't really understand, like, the job world in that sense. But, you know, hopefully if I'm able to build a big business, I'll try to look for that entrepreneurial stuff. And I think there's definitely companies out there that would value that experience. I just think it can also be hard to like get a foot in the door and like get the ear of the right person. And I also mm. don't like, I'm like not into networking in the like, where I'm just like really trying to talk to someone to benefit myself. Like I love to talk to people like you and just like have conversations. I love it. But what I don't mm. like is like scheming to like get a hold of someone that can advance like my personal interests. Like that's just, I don't enjoy that. Um, doing that like yeah. my time yeah of course and I found that with the podcast it's actually sick because I get to have the conversations I'm curious about and then if if it seems if me and the person has like mutual things that we can like ask for advice on each other about it's perfect but as you say when you have can have a normal conversation with no expectation of any value exchange you can just go deep properly so I think it's a sick medium for that I, I agree. I've enjoyed the conversation so far um, and I'm excited to stay in contact with you, right? Like it's such a great way um, to meet people. Um, and yes. I imagine for you, yeah, you get to just reach out to people and people love to talk about themselves as, as we <laughs> talk a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, it's a great way to connect with people. Yeah. I, I want to move to America one day and I think it's going to help me do that because otherwise I wouldn't know anyone. But now I've got you in San Fran. I know someone in Miami, someone in LA. So yeah, it's cool. Uh -huh. If you're, if you're still hustling 
are working on stuff, you got to come out to San Francisco. Miami's like where I'm going to go after I make it big. Uh, <laughs> That's really yeah. money. How does it work then in America? Because I don't know. I only I hear all these news stories about like LA is like fucked from all the homeless people and like the, all the problems that city has. What what can you describe like the difference between New York, San Fran? Yeah, the best place? I'm biased. Like I'm super biased, so like this might offend people, I guess. But like New York to me, it's like there's none. Like my problems with it, I guess it's like not a lot of nature, and you like obviously live in like really small apartments. It's really expensive. And like people are like grinding like all day, like seems like to be a lot more corporate America focused um, and like banking and this kind of thing. And there's like, that's kind of where the second biggest, like at least um, like venture back kind of businesses are, but it's small in comparison to San Francisco, which is like where all the startups are. Everybody's working in tech. You'll go out and like half the people you meet are working on startups. Um, but specifically it's more like kind of like venture backed kind of startups. It's like atypical. I mean, we didn't get into this, but we didn't raise any funding for our business. And that was definitely atypical. Um, Miami's more like kind of like hustler culture. Uh, you spend a lot of money, you go out to clubs, uh, lot, lots of great, lots of great food and culture and fun there. Um, but yeah, every, every city has its pros and cons. Yeah, that's cool. What do you think is going to be the next? Um, sorry, this is circling back a bit, but yeah. when we're talking about AI and like how this is the best window to pursue your interest on the internet. So what do you think is going to be a defensible career or business when AI takes over? That I do not know. Um, it's, the it's question. very, very hard to say um, what will be defensible. I mean, like right now it looks like I think the most obvious answer is like physical kind of stuff, like people who build houses, like it, automating in the physical world is seeming like it's going to take longer. Um, but I think like in most cases, like for a good amount of time, like who knows my, my AGI predictions, like who knows, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like I might be 15, 20, I might be a hundred years off. Um, and so like in the in-between window between now and AGI, I, I kind of view it as just growing the economy and amplifying a lot of roles that already exist. I don't think most roles will be completely automated. I think content creation is still going to be dominated by people for a long time. I think to produce like top tier content, you really have to be like on the cutting edge, like specifically on TikTok where it's so merit-based. I don't think AI generated content is going to take over. I think people like watching other people. Um, I think like even like lawyers, it's just going to amplify their ability to do what they do and like make potentially make their, um, their hour, their hourly rate go down, but uh, the number of clients that they can service will go up. Um, and I think that will be the thing in like a lot of industries. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, another reason why now is the perfect time to start a business because you get to ride that wave while it's still happening. Exactly. I just found out that Spotify are now translating every podcast into every language while they're planning to, which means yeah. that those content creators used to have a market of Western speakers and now the market is the entire world. So yes. like, people like Mr. Beast who have already taken over and he did his own like Spanish channel with his team, his his sort of domination is actually just starting, which I think is so wild. Yeah, I think um, I think it's crazy. Like you said, like that was kind of like a cutting edge strategy for some content creators to like split their uh, content up into two two different things. That's what Mr. Beast did. Um, but 
yeah, the reach is crazy. Um, and also like just kind of more generally, like in a business sense, it's interesting that like Spotify will probably dominate that space. Um, and so like a lot of the bigger companies are using AI to just like grow their market share. And so like, there's a lot of startup winners and there's a lot of businesses to start, but there's also a lot of market share that's going to get eaten up by these big players. I mean, like there were probably startups that were like fundraising to do that exact challenge that after that Spotify announcement are not going to be able to raise money and are probably going to have yeah. to shut down. Yeah. There's one called Wondercraft and they'd already built the product and they've already built a bigger product, but Spotify realistically, I mean, it feels like they would just steamroll them because of their distribution, as you're saying, maybe that's something that becomes defensible distribution because it yeah. requires human creativity and connection and also to be honest the data which makes me think that companies like spotify have actually got a huge advantage over i don't think i think they're probably undervalued in terms of musical data is so there must be so many fascinating insights in there about people that no one's even uncovered yet that ai will just when you run AI on that data, it's insane what could come out. Very true. And like the data advantage they'll have for like recommending better songs for people even. Or really where this is going is like custom songs for you, which is interesting that the impact that will have on culture. Because a lot of cultures like these shared experiences and a lot of personal media experiences are going to become much more personal. Like your for you page on whatever platform it may be, like might be entirely unique to you. We'll see how that's navigated. Um, but yeah, I think distribution is the advantage. Like I said, like this technology, I mean, like right now there's like gatekeepers between behind some of these LLM technologies and some of these AIs, it's going to be open source and it's great, great, um, models are going to be available to like anyone who wants them to like run locally or run on servers. Um, and so I don't think that technology is like the moat that it once was. And I think like you kind of hit the nail on the head on. I mean, if you look at our story, we won because of distribution. We did not win because our prompt, though fantastic, and though I think it's the best on the market, that was not the key differentiator that gave us a million downloads. It was that we've done 200 million views across platforms. Like that is what drove our growth. Yeah, that is so mad. That is so mad. I think it's insane that, um, obviously you've had huge success, but people still are likely to, like you've only got, how many Twitter followers do you have? Uh, maybe like eight, 800 now, slowly growing. That's just, just, start, just start the Twitter. You must be one of the best, um, Twitter, TikTok marketers on earth, I would say. So it's crazy how long it takes people to value these things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly the 800 tick, the 800 Twitter followers, like a big win for me. <laughs> not that, and I don't, you're not, I know you're, it's not a lot relatively. I just started. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, that being said, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's also like, I personally don't like, I tweet things occasionally, but I'm not even actually, I'm trying to be like a little more, bit more low key. Um, and I also okay. have a generous compliment, um, that about TikTok marketing. And I think that's, um, honestly, like, not me individually. I think like the team that I kind of work with, I think we're doing like really, really cutting edge stuff. And we're very lucky. Like I'll shout out one of my partners, Evan Dre. So like, this is kind of some more context. He worked with this other guy, Jimmy Farley, who we work with now, who's pretty big on Twitter, Jimmy. Um, and Jimmy's fantastic at what he does. And it's in the TikTok marketing content creation space. And Evan is 
great too. He's like leading our distribution. Um, and they started this color changing swimsuit business like in 2020 um, or, or 2019. Um, and they did like 500 million, they did half a billion views um, advertising these color changing swimsuits on TikTok. And so they were so freaking early. And so just like being able to work with those guys and like watch what they were doing, like opened my eyes um, and like has kind of enabled us. They were so cutting edge. They were like some of the first brands on the platform. And like now every brand knows to be on the platform, but we've still been able to kind of stay ahead of the curve in that sense. That's sick. I, I'm, I'm avoiding the temptation to ask like what makes a viral video on TikTok because that's, that's an example of a terrible prompt for ChatGPT. But what, what, what is the approach that they've taken and now you take? I'm guessing it's like experimentation. Yeah, right? experimentation, iterating, um, and you just have to generally have an eye for like what people want and what people find interesting. Like you can't be boring for like 20 seconds and then get into, you have to get into a quick. I mean, it's all things that people know. Um, and it's really just about like number of high quality shots taken. And like, all, if I wanted to start up a TikTok page for a brand tomorrow, I might spend like two months at like 200 views. In fact, I was making some personal TikTok videos just trying to share about like business advice. I still have not gotten any traction there. And I've made videos for our page that have done like 15 million views on our page and then went off and were reshared, did like 50 million views. And those were stories that I wrote. So like, I'm pretty good at it and I can't do it every time. It's really hard um, and you have to just take a lot of shots. How often do you have to post? Is that a thing? Or is it like every single shot is a new chance to shoot? Yeah, I think every shot is, is a new chance to shoot. I think um, like there's, I was thinking about tweeting something about this, but there's so many, like, in my opinion, midwit takes of like, you need to post at 9 p.m. You need to post twice a day. The algorithm was, it's like, no, you need to put out good videos. That's really all you need to do. Um, and if you continue to do that, videos that provide value, that find an audience, that find a niche, you'll eventually be successful, but they have to be, you have to study. The space is constantly changing and the bar for like, what's going to work is changing. And so you have to be like watching other people um, and incorporating things. And like I said, just experimenting, taking shots. Yeah. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've seen the TikTok of the guy with like the really fat fake bum and he like runs around and gets chased by bodyguards. Words. I think he's the biggest TikToker in the world now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he does two videos a week or one video a week he's like yeah. they spend all week editing it it's not it's not like i don't know where this idea of like consistency came from i think it might have been youtube or instagram back in the day those older algorithms but it seems which is good because i found those like you need to post once every day like it's kind of like having a job at that point you're not well, it is like having a job. You're tied to doing that and thinking about that at that time. So you, you don't Agreed. get to. It could be really stressful to have to, you know, stick to that every day. And so for me, like, but at the same time, I think it's important. I think consistency personally is important. And I think that you'll increase your chances of success if you're putting out a good number of shots. So it's yeah. not like, it's like all things in life, at least the way like I approach anything, like working out, dieting. I mean, I, I hate giving myself like incredibly hard rules to follow like post every day or like I'm going to hate myself forever. No, that's too stressful for me, but get posts up, right? Like yeah. the number of times taken, like if you post once a week, you're one seventh is likely uh, to yeah. be successful. Unless the shots are like that much, seven times higher quality. Yeah. And I think looking at it like that is really good. Like it's the reps you put in just like in the gym. 
it's about quality and quantity and also there is a point at which yeah the quality just drops off and it's not worth doing it how do you know when you're onto a winning thing with tiktok like for example on my podcast tiktok i get like anywhere from 3000 views to 200 views what's 3000 is that is that good is that bad yeah 3000 is great 3000 is great like a lot of people like like i said on my personal page where i'm just making videos talking about stuff they put up 10 videos none of them more than like eight one did 800 views and that was like a big one i was like let's go <laughs> um 3000 is great i think like a key kind of like kpi like indicator to look at um is like ratios and so like don't get me wrong like this is not what the algorithm looks at to determine if you go viral the algorithm like like ratio is probably like i this is a total guess it's probably like one like five percent of what they look at to determine virality but it is correlated in my opinion with other viral indicators um that are much much harder to measure and like ratios are different for every page on tiktok um, and so some creators, if they don't hit a one in four like ratio, their video is not going anywhere. Like those are maybe bigger creators, but they'll get 50,000 views. And to get to the 1 million view mark and beyond for them, they need like the one in four like ratio. And that's like the nature of their audience. Like maybe it's the age and like how much they like the guy or whatever it may be that they like it. They like videos a lot, but maybe they're not getting the engagement or other factors again, that are harder to watch. And then some pages you need like a one in 20 like ratio to go viral. Um, but why it's a great indicator is it's kind of like a personal metric for you to look at. And so like, for me, if I'm doing on pages like better than like a one to 10 like ratio, like it's a positive sign. Um, but a better like ratio, like on a page is an indicator that it will go viral, if that makes sense. So like to rephrase that, like if one video you put up is a one in 50 like to view ratio, and then you put up that's one to 10, like you should lean into that one to 10 like ratio and that's what people are liking. So okay. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any tools that pull out these data points or is it like you scroll through and see and write it down? You, I just, whenever I put a video up, like I'm watching comments, I'm watching likes, like as they go, I, I'm too obsessive about it. Like I'll be refreshing the page, like looking at new <laughs> It's not the best way to do it. You should just like probably let things be, but I'm, yeah. yeah. The dopamine or whatever. Do you think that's healthy, or do you think always that's healthy? Um, maybe not. Um, I my thought process is like I, I get less obsessive about these things like over time. Like when we were first blowing up, like I was like watching views like so intently, um, and then like as we've been successful over time, like I don't feel the need to obsess at every post that comes up. And it was the mm. same thing like in my food delivery business, like. I would obsess about daily food sales. And that business is much harder because if you don't cross a th certain threshold, you're like losing money. <laughs> so like that was more stressful. Um, but over time, it's just important to like, you know, check the numbers like once a day kind of thing, not yeah. constantly refresh, but it can be hard. Let's talk about that actually. Um, I found a YouTube video of you and your co-founder at the time, Jonah, for the food delivery business which is crazy to see like how much you've changed in like well, a few years, but it's also like sick to see because your mind is still the same. You've just now like grown up and like done new things and learned Leveling new things. Leveling up, man. Leveling up. I appreciate that. I love that you've done your research. I love yeah. it. And yeah, the sexy kickstands were very, 
I look back fondly. It was very fun. Yeah, I bet. Like you're saying stuff like you're breaking down the numbers of how you do four deliveries. You can deliver four items in one delivery, therefore the cost is lower than DoorDash. And you think it wasn't just like a, you're thinking like a startup founder at that point, not just like a hobbyist who's like done a few paper deliveries. So can you tell us the story of that whole business? Because it sounds like sure. you have a serious operation. Yeah. So I'll start the story briefly with I uh, senior year of high school, I got really lucky. Um, and there's this guy, John Callahan, who runs True Ventures. Um, and I knew his son. Um, and I my school like had an internship program. And I got connected with him. And I got to intern at True Ventures um, and kind of learn from him and learn from people at True. And that opened my mind to business as a whole. Because I remember um, I was watching in a certain pitch meeting. And I won't get into specifics. But a company was selling a product. And everyone was going back and forth debating the price. And people were saying things like, I think $9.99 is exactly feels right to me. And then someone else says like, I think $1,300 is really where we should sell this at. And it was like, these were experienced entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, people who had built hundreds of millions of dollars of business, like in these rooms. And they're just like relying on their intuition. And I think a lot of people, like there's a lot of things that were probably going on behind the scenes that I missed. But the lesson I took away from that was like, oh my God, like these people are just figuring it out as they go. That was the biggest lesson. And so I said, okay, I want to start a business. Um, and so I went in to college and I decided food delivery. I didn't think much about it. I didn't read about the margins of the restaurant, <laughs> restaurant industry. I'm glad I didn't because if I did, I probably went to start at the business. I uh, met a guy, Jonah, on my dorm floor. We started selling pancakes like off of the sixth floor. Got kicked out by the RAs. They ended up having to write new rules into the handbook to uh, stop us from doing what we were doing. But by that point, we had moved on, uh, found a commercial kitchen to rent, um, and just kind of slowly, day by day, iterated and grew that business. And yeah, we were thinking like startups. I think even at that time, I was just starting to explore like YC videos on YouTube and reading about startups. And being from Silicon Valley, like I kind of had seen these things firsthand and was thinking of ourselves like a startup and constantly iterating. Um, started off really slow, like maybe did $5,000 in food sales semester one. I already thought the business was worth like half a million dollars, which was definitely <laughs> not true. Um, it's a common theme for me. I'm very, very optimistic, um, uh -huh. overly so to a fault probably. But we were able to grow then. Um, at one point, like we were at a run rate of like $500,000 in revenue a year. But expenses in the food business are just so tough. Our rent was like $7,000. Ended up selling that business for not a lot of money. But learned so much. I mean, like I would pay for that experience, right? Like, and I practically did because I hardly didn't really make any money. But that was like a more educational experience for me than college. Um, and yeah, it taught me about management. It taught me about watching costs, which is something like I think maybe some people in like software, maybe they're lacking that kind of experience sometimes. Um, and they think they can just, you know, like money grows on trees, like from venture capitalists. And maybe I had to, Maybe it's a chip on my shoulder, but I had to hustle a little bit more for it and cut costs at every corner. And so that was fantastic. I'm glad I have that kind of under my belt. But mm -hmm. yeah, man, I mean, 2 a.m. every night, calls, going into the kitchen, cleaning up grease. It was a grind, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's sick. So how much did you sell it for, if you don't mind me asking? We sold it for... Um, 
a earnout agreement. Um, and so we didn't get any money up front except for like the equipment that we sold. And then we got, I believe like 25% of revenue of sales in the business. But that honestly has not amounted too much um, because, okay. you know, I don't want to, the guys that we sold it to very smart guys, very nice guys. Um, it, it's tough to take the founders out of a business like that. Um, and we were yeah. really um, like in touch with a student body. Um, and I think like kind of leaving that business definitely hurt it a good amount, but it's okay. And I was juiced to get it off my hands. And I put this in air quotes, like get an X under my belt. Um, Cause it was not, not like necessarily like a huge exit, like you see in software uh, by any means, but so happy to just kind of have that experience and see that through. Yeah. Cause I think most people, when they start a business, don't think about the exit at all. I didn't. Was it, was it easy to find people who would be interested in buying it or did they approach you or? Not easy at all. Like we had to like manufacture that like out of, out of nothing. Like we found a kitchen, a local business that their kitchen was like underutilized in capacity. And we actually moved our kitchen operation into their business. That was kind of step one um, and had them, had their chefs start producing our food and we used their space. So we went to more of like an asset light model and we did that for a semester. And so that doing that integration first, like also took a lot of strain out of the business because I wanted to start transitioning out of it. And I couldn't do that when we were paying $7,000 a month in rent and we had all these overhead costs, like that would not be appropriate unless I was able to get out of that lease, um, which we were able to do and get into like more of an asset, asset light, like kind of no risk model. And so that's what we did first. Um, and then second was just like, Hey, are you interested in buying us out negotiation? And then ended up with the earn out. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's cool. But yeah, really, really um, had to manufacture that. No, nobody approached us. I still have yet to be approached even with this business with any buyout offers. That would be fun if that ever happens. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be interesting. And also, this is such a sick story. It's only the beginning with you, I feel like. But Tim Ferriss talks about his um, his personal MBA that he did with the money that he was going to spend on an MBA. Seems like you've done the best version of that, I would say, maybe you could do at this current point in time in 2023. You've got the distribution. You've done like a hardcore, tight margin business. These are all very sick. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very grateful for the experiences that I honestly stumbled into to some degree. Mm. I mean, like I said, like I just started cooking pancakes out of the dorm room. That was a step one. Um, and so I don't yeah. know. No, I don't know if anyone on the podcast is looking for advice. Um, but my advice generally is like just always taking that first step and trying something like that was all it took. And then the rest kind of figures itself out. Why did you try that? I was working as a busboy in a restaurant. Um, and I was pissed off that I was making less money than everybody else. I thought, oh, I'm going to get rich if I sell the food myself. Didn't think very, <laughs> didn't do enough research about that, I guess, because that's not the reality of the restaurant business. In fact, I was probably making more as a busboy than the owners of that restaurant were making. Good chance, uh, as most restaurants are. Um, but yeah, I, I remember I was just working as a busboy and like I, was, I pitched the idea to my coworkers who were like all like 30. They're like, oh, that sounds like a great idea, Alex. And I'm like, Cool. <laughs> Went down and tried it. My first idea was cookies. And then I realized like insomnia cookies was like a thing. And I was like, crap. Okay. Pancakes. And I, and I, I think like the first ever real pancake I cooked was like the day of that operation. <laughs> I just knew pancakes were easy to cook. 
<laughs> so what, what was the like, I don't know if you could even call it this, but what was the tech stack you had at the time? Did people like message a, a yeah, number? And that was one of the competitive advantages of that business. So like we had a lot of competitors, even at Tulane, people tried to do what we were doing. Um, and we had people at other schools. We had people go on our website, take our exact copy, take our images and rip it for their school. Um, but they would put it into a Google form and we would run on Shopify. No other competitor I saw. And I mean, this kind of says something about no offense if you start one of these competing, if someone started one of these who's listening, but the quality of competition at the time, like they weren't setting up Shopify's. Um, that from day one, you could go onto our website, easy checkout through Shopify. No one was really using Shopify for food businesses, but it was mm -hmm. fantastic and it made it easy for our customers to reach us. Um, so much better than like a Google form and then trying to collect. Uh, we also accepted Venmo. Um, so we let people Venmo us as well, which is like great for getting the business off the ground. But that was like one of the key things I learned as well, which was like having a clean site, clean branding is going to get people to trust you. Um, and you don't like, yeah, you want your MVP to like, at least like look solid, like on the front end. Like we took so many shortcuts on the back end with wingman, but at least like it looked decently, decently pretty. <laughs> Though I will say uh, with wingman, we accidentally named it um, Riz GPT dash production before our first hundred thousand down. Like we crossed hundred thousand downloads accidentally with production in the name. So um, how did you not realize that? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Like when you names on the app store, it was just Riz GPT. But then when you downloaded the app, it was named dash production. Uh -huh. And that's okay. something to do with putting the name in the wrong spot on Xcode that we just didn't realize. So, it wasn't as dumb of a mistake as I kind of maybe make it out to be, but it's still, still not very smart. But it, yeah, it still worked. Uh, but yeah, the Shopify tech stack, and then we had um, a ticket printer that we. So initially, people were writing down tickets by hand. We had a guy whose job it was to like take orders off the Shopify, write it down, pass it on to the kitchen. I was in the kitchen cooking eggs like in this really small dorm room, um, and then finally we were able to. Got to get some custom ticket printer software built. So our tech stack was Shopify plus custom ticket printer, which lasted, uh, yeah, it scaled with us. That's sick. So were you doing this every single night, Monday to Friday, Monday to Sunday, or did you have a started, team? Big started um, two nights a week. And that was really hard, honestly, because, I mean, we would be up to like 4 a.m. I think we went till 2 a.m. was when we started. So we'd be up to like 4 a.m. cleaning. And that was crazy doing that every weekend. And some of our girlfriends at the time, like totally, <laughs> like the girlfriends that we made at the start, like totally stopped hanging out with us. Um, and then years later would be like, oh my gosh, like, can we get tickets to like the business party? You got like, we would throw like thousand person events and things like this. And so that was kind of funny, but um, that's a story for another time. But start that's with people hate sacrifice when they see it yeah. on the day but they love the results of it they love the results that's certain uh it's definitely true and so we uh we're doing two two nights a week scaled to four semester one um and then pretty soon after like semester two scaled to seven um, and we were going like seven nights a week open pretty much every single day at school like rain or shine uh, was just grinding making sure that happened like oh ice cream machines broke okay like i'm coming in there i'm gonna fix it i'm gonna figure out like how that freaking machine works and and <laughs> done it's kind of like i'm reading the elon musk book right now and he's about like 10 times smarter but it, but it's cool because they're talking about like some of the production stuff 
and like food is very different and much easier than rockets. So I don't even want to like make that comparison, but like, yeah, figuring out these production line problems and just getting in there and making sure yeah. it happens. Going back to what we were saying though, um, earlier, I'm not saying Elon Musk is not one of the greatest entrepreneurs who ever lived. He is, but even my marketing agency does deep tech and I work with companies who do all sorts of things like on the fringes of science. And I just wish that people would realize that these things at the end of the day, it's still someone just using their logic and reason to test ideas and experimenting loads of times to see what works. I think too often people are like, oh, it's not rocket science. But even rocket science is a process just the same as any other process. That's a great point. And it's a process that for now, for me, with my current level of knowledge, might be a little bit out of my league. Yeah. Guess, yeah like I, I think I'm a believer. I think I can do anything. I think pretty much anyone can do anything. Um, and yeah, if I set my mind to go like work at SpaceX and go help them, yeah, I don't think I'd be Elon by any means. But yeah, it would be, I'm sure I could contribute something. Uh, yeah, hopefully exactly. after years to those processes yeah. that would have a real impact on society. So, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, coming to the end now, but I just want to understand, I think you're an incredible guy and I think that this is just the, the beginning. What is next for you in coming? You, usually I ask people next year, but those people are normally in operations mode where they're just doing the same thing. So I want to see where they are, but you're still in takeoff mode in my opinion. So in the next decade, where do you where do you see your sort of path going? It's a great question, um, and thank you for all the questions so far. And I know we're not quite done yet, but I'm, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, so, where do I see myself um, in in ten years? So I'll say like right now, obviously, like I can't help but having ideas kind of like go through my head on like even what's next a year from now. Um, that being said, like we're really heads down, um, and we're just doing our best to capitalize on the opportunity in front of us. Um, yeah. I think for me, um, the kind of options that I'm considering are like maybe going for some sort of venture back swing. Um, that's a possibility. I definitely like, I'm not obsessed with venture capital as like the only way to like start a business. In fact, like I think people like seek out venture capital probably too frequently when they maybe should just be trying to create a profitable business and, then decide to scale from there. I think taking a big swing could be really fun, something in AI. I also think um, like making more apps like Wingman is a very viable business model for me um, that I've been kind of proving out and think I could continue to prove out. And so maybe more app development in the next like one to two years, 10 years from now. Um, I hope uh, that I'm able to make enough money while I'm young to like support myself um, and not really have to worry about money. That's kind of one of my goals is, you know, I don't need infinite money, but I want enough to feel financially secure. And one of my long-term goals, um, I think investing in people could be fun and being a mentor and supporting people. And another one, um, I'm a big believer in the power of entrepreneurship. And I also think, as I was talking about earlier, I think you can only aim as high as you can see. And so I want to help people who maybe have like less privilege um, and like less resources kind of like start their own businesses. And so that might be like working with younger kids um, and helping them think through what kind of businesses they can start. Maybe being a mentor where, again, I was very lucky to see so many entrepreneurs around me growing up. 
And I don't think I'd be able to do what I did without seeing those people. So maybe um, like exposing younger people to uh, this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and showing them what's possible and maybe guiding them through that process in some way. And more of maybe an investment, but also more of like a philanthropic sense um, would be something I think I would get a lot of fulfillment out of that. And I think it would also make the world a better place, which ultimately is what I'm interested in doing. That's really sick. Um, you're a really lovely guy, actually. I like that. That's I, I, I appreciate it. I, I would, I say the same about you, man. I, I really appreciate all the questions and what you're building. It's, it's awesome. Thank you. And I would echo what you say about, um, you can only shoot as far as you can see, because that's kind of the reason I started this podcast. Um, I grew up in like a sleepy village in England and never around any entrepreneurs. And it, but I know I always had a dream of being more than like what was in front of me. And when I was like, the first book I, w I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Not the first book I read, but the first business book I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And yeah. I remember get, getting to the end of it and just being like, I didn't know how to laugh or be annoyed because I was like, I can't believe this has been on Amazon that my whole life. And it felt like it was just the start of seeing the whole world in a whole new light. So I think that's an yeah. amazing mission. I think you can do very good work. Thank you. Area. And as you were saying earlier, I mean, that's the beauty of the internet, right? Like you're able to now the content that's out there. I mean, it's even like way more than when we were growing up, right? Like YouTube and seeing all the startup stuff on there on TikTok. I know so many kids learn about like drop shipping and some of these business models like through TikTok now at a really young age. Um, and also, yeah, I think readings become more popular. Maybe it's just as I'm getting older, but I think people are more interested now in self-improvement um, than maybe they were 10 years ago, which I also think is great. Like books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad or Zero to One um, or any any of these kind of early entrepreneurial books really can open your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for this conversation. Where can someone find you if they want to ask you about yeah. anything? Yeah. Um, yeah. Follow me on Twitter. I guess my, my username is kind of weird. I said it like years ago, it's like old underscore man underscore Alex. But I think if you just look up Alex Lyman, L E I M A N, you'd find me and just like DM me on Twitter. I'm, I try to talk to like anybody who DMs me for the most part, unless they're like really trying to sell me something like out of the gate. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But if you come at me with a question and you're not just trying to get money out of me, I'll definitely talk to you. Okay, well, I hope anyone listening makes the most of that because in two years' time, I have a feeling that's not going to be possible anymore. <laughs> Your DMs are going to be full. <laughs> thank you, All right, well, Thank you so much, man, for coming on. It's been an insane conversation. You're probably the youngest guest I've had on and it's given me a lot of energy that you're... I also started this podcast wanting to meet people like you, like hungry, young entrepreneurs. So, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, Thanks again. Glad we got to connect and we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch. Yeah, 100%, man. All right. All the best. Thank you.